0: Please turn with me to Samuel chapter 8. As we begin to work through this passage this morning, I will read the whole thing. <clears throat> it's easy to go along with as a narrative. Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, Joel and the name of his second And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves." And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel said to them, to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray as we open it, we think about it, that your spirit would enliven it to us, and that you would help us understand what our proper response to your word should be today. Amen. So, I want to start by doing a little bit of review. I think it's always helpful where we were last week in chapter 7. And that being that the, if you remember, the ark was returned from the Philistines who had captured it. And it was, uh, they had it for about 20 years. The people had repented from their ways as God had chastised them and judged them. And they were restored. And Samuel was their leader as the judge and they appointed other judges for various reasons, regions and that was the model of authority that God had established in the country. They didn't have a king. God never said he would give them a king. He was to be their king. The Philistines had been routed and I'm going to Put a map up here in a minute. Don't change that for me, please, yet. Uh, the, uh, The Philistines had been routed out of the country. They had been harassing Israelites for a long time. And they did not bother the Hebrew people for the rest of Samuel's life. Cities were restored that had been taken from them. And they had peace with the Amorites, another nation that they were they were up against. So it was a good time once they repented. They turned from their idolatry, their gods. They had been worshiping Baal and Ashtaroth. And I'm going to talk about those in review a couple of minutes to add to what Nick had been talking about last week. And they had peace because they turned their backs and followed the Lord's leading in these matters. And the reason I want to talk real briefly about Baal, some pronounce it, and Ashtaroth is because These are perfect images of idolatry that existed then that exists today, even though we don't call it that. And it's more indirect because they always had physical representations of their gods. We don't do that here, so we somehow think we're a lot better and we don't have gods. But we all have idolatrous hearts if we are so inclined, especially if you don't know Christ. Baal was the God of weather, fertility and of child sacrifice in particular. and they had um, and you can imagine how important weather and fertility were to people back in that day. That's all you know was very important. Things didn't go well with those two matters. There was a lot of problem for them to survive. And because of the way they saw things, they were willing to sacrifice children to appease Baal. Now Ashtaroth is, is even more interesting, because there's a historicy that I wanted to tell you about that exists to this day, even that term. Ashtaroth um, was a female deity and is now understood as even a female demon. And there's multiples of it. If you look at it, there's, there's multiple like beings within this one being. And I found when I looked a little bit about this, how this word and this being... And interest in it has persisted actually to this day. Some of you might be old enough to remember the, movie, the uh, Disney movie in 1971, uh, Bedknobs and Broomsticks. You ever heard of that one? A couple people. This movie is all about a spell and a magical medallion. And it's called The Star of Ashtaroth. And all of its power is given by this demon. And so here's a kid's movie. In 1971, in which Astaroth, the female demon from however long ago, Millennia, is still seen as something interesting. And it's been featured in movies even as late as a few years ago. There's some horror flicks that use this demonic picture. And that really says something to me about the power of Satan. Satan and his ability to continue to manifest himself in a particular way of evil. But if we look for it, we can see it. And if we look at some of these gods and what they sacrificed for, we tend to have the same idolatrous hearts when we're not fully running after God. And that's the problem the Israelites had. They had these gods around them in other countries that they were so enamored with sometimes. Looking at the idols of ancient people help us understand our own idolatrous heart. There are great similarities, even though it's often in the expression of how we follow it. So this this is a picture of the tomb of Samuel in Israel today. This is a mosque that was built on a synagogue that was built on a church. Originally, after the time of Christ, there was a church here, and then after the destruction of the Judeans in this area, a synagogue was built, and then at the time of the Muslims, when they came swept down through the area, they built this. And so this is actually a site where all three religions still are welcome to come. And I just thought it was interesting. Sometimes we forget that in our you know, antiseptic world here in the West, that a lot of these things, if we look at them over there, help us imagine what we're dealing with. And this map, I think, is really helpful, too, as we've been talking about where all this is located. And when we talk about Samuel, he goes down to Ramah, which is highlighted there, which was his home and how much was centered in all of this area at that time, and even in the larger biblical time. It talks about Mizpah, and um, over on the right, the whole, you're right, the whole word Gilgal is not up there, but that's Gilgal. So when we read our passages, there's a lot of history here, which is interesting. And Samuel was born in this town around 1100 B.C. And he made his home there after spending his youth at Shiloh. When the Israelites decided they needed a king, they came to Ramah and made their request of Samuel. Later, when David escaped from King Saul's court at Gibeah, he sought refuge at Samuel's home in Ramah. So there's a lot to this. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about Kiriath-Jerim there on the left. Um, That is where the ark was for 20 years. And on, off the screen to the left, is Philistia, where the Philistines lived And they had always been encroaching in on this area. But during the time of Samuel, they were not able to come in. And you'll notice how close it is to Jerusalem. These are probably... Well, these are all walking distances. Now, this is a picture on top of that current mosque, the tomb, looking out, and the far part is actually Jerusalem. So it's only several miles And so, as Bruce, you're nodding your head. I don't know if you were in this town, but they were just recently in Israel. And so, we often think of it maybe in different strange terms, but we forget everything was pretty close. It was walkable in short distances. And um, so, everything was very close at that time. So, we see them going here, going there, different judges, different towns. When Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians... In 587 B.C., just before the time of Christ, several hundred years. The captives were assembled at Ramah, Ramah before being deported to Babylon, to the north. The prophet Jeremiah, who was amongst those who had been captured, wrote about the mourning and weeping in Ramah. So, this area that we're studying is really interesting historically in many ways in the Bible. And I think this helps us get a good picture of what life was like there and how they lived. So part of my few slides that I have left, I kind of made for the kids. They're kind of kid slides. (laughs) So bear with them. Um, But I have three sections to my talk, which we'll kind of quickly go through as we look at Samuel chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8. We have the return to idolatry. We have the rights of a king. And then the rejection of Samuel's warning. Return to idolatry, rights of the king, and rejection of Samuel's warning. And this chapter is really, really significant in the whole uh, flow of things in 1 Samuel and even 2 Samuel because this is what sets the stage for the coming of who? Saul, David, Solomon, kind of the rest of the history of Israel with regard to the king's. And so this is the turning point that it happens because of the sin of the people. And so as we open it up and we look in the first several verses, the first couple verses, we see Samuel's sons were appointed to be priests and judges, judges for Israel. Now, remember that Samuel grew up where? Samuel grew up in Eli's home and the temple. And, he and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, did what? They perverted justice and God judged them. And so Samuel saw this, presumably, as he grew up. And yet here we have Samuel's two sons, ironically, doing the same thing and abusing God's people. So it's kind of hard to imagine that this happened And, of course, there's a lot of pontification out there about why Samuel's failure as a father, maybe not. Um, You know, we talk about, amongst us with our kids, you know, that there's, in a way, there's no guarantee how they're going to turn out. You know, you can do everything right, and they might pervert justice in their adult lives, in a sense. You don't know. There's no guarantees. So we can't really draw much from this passage, Samuel's failure or not. We just look at it as it is, surprised, surprised nevertheless this is what happens and so here we have who comes to Samuel the elders okay the people didn't come in a big mob but the elders and that's what this picture is kind of like highlighting a little bit the elders come and for who knows what number of reasons they're worried right maybe they thought well here we have the same thing happening that happened before it's only been a a generation or so um, and now we see them perverting justice They're, they're goofing it all up Maybe we should get a king. Maybe a king will help fix this. Maybe it's also been, what, a time of peace. A lot of people presumably became wealthy or at least comfortable. Life was pretty good. And so they maybe were forgetting the past and the results of not following with God as their king, right? I think we see that happening even in our own Western culture. You know, Western culture is very comfortable. Life is easy. New generations can forget the past, not look at the past and say, boy, if we do that thing, it might not go well for us. And yet we have a lot of people asking to do the thing of the past. We don't need to run down that rabbit trail, but we can think about that. This is what people tend to do over time. They tend to forget Maybe we're lazy. Maybe we're too comfortable. Maybe they were lazy and too comfortable. Ultimately, they rejected God's plan, right? They rejected his plan, said, give us a king, because why? We want to be like who? We want to be like the other nations around them. At that time, all these nations were kingdom, were kingdom states, king states, they call them. They had a king, and these weren't big countries, Okay, These were not half a million people in a country. They were small. And so the little kingdoms that they had were pretty easily managed by one person and all the people that worked for that king. But they looked out and they saw something that they really liked. One person in charge. What is the problem with having God as your king? You don't see him, right? You're trusting the intermediary like Samuel and the judges to execute justice. So maybe if we give the elders and the people a little bit of a a moment of consideration, we might say, well, no wonder they were discouraged. Maybe they were tired of this injustice and thought, well, maybe if we just have one person that can make all the rules, then we'll be good. Seems like the other countries got that going on. So let's do that. And then secondly, I, I would presume that they were worried militarily. And they didn't have an army, right? If you remember... The last event we see in scripture was the Philistines were coming when they found out the people were praying to God and they got the ark back. The Philistines were worried. And what did God have them do? What did Samuel have them do? They prayed and God won the victory. But they decided that model wasn't good enough. They wanted a king. So Samuel was displeased, and this is really interesting. He was upset with the people because, of course, he knew. His whole life, he's been about, get right with God. You've got to get this thing figured out. He's the king. He's in charge. Get rid of these idols. And so here they are saying, we want a king. We want to get rid of our king. We don't want to follow him. We want to have a different kind of idolatry. But he prayed first. He didn't lash out at him. He went and prayed. And, you know, as a leader in the church, that's a good thing for me to remember. It's a good thing for all of us to remember. When something's going on, don't overreact. Because if there was a time to overreact, that was it. But he went and he prayed to God. And God gave him the direction he didn't expect, right? What I find interesting here, and I've been alluding to, is that As long as Israel followed God's ways, they didn't need a king. You know, that's a lesson that we'll kind of come back around to at the end. As long as we follow God, we don't need an idol, another idol. We don't need another king to follow. We don't need a a person up here to follow. He's our king. And yet, they rejected him. One commentator said, This was an attempt to accomplish through a political act That which could only be achieved through ongoing spiritual responsibility. Trying to solve that which is ultimately spiritual with politics of their day. Of course, that's true for us, right? We have to be careful in all of our efforts in our democratic type society that as Christians we don't lean heavily on thinking all of our solutions will be political. We have to trust the king. We have to figure it out, of course... But if we find ourselves feeling like I'm just pursuing a political solution to problems, we're probably across the line further than we need to be as Christians. Deuteronomy chapter 16 verse 18 gives us what the original command was in how this structure was to be worked out. God was talking to the Israelites when they were in the desert and He said, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of justice and the righteous. Justice, and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land your Lord God is giving you. So that's the way it was meant to be, and they're saying, that's not good enough, give us a cake. Got a couple little tangents today. You know, I like tangents. You know what a tangent is, right? I'm not a mathematics guy at all, but I do know a tangent is moving away off to the side of kind of your your target, right? I think tangents can be good. I hope to pop your thinking about things principally as we go through these things. Sometimes when people are frustrated by church leadership, maybe you've been part of this, maybe you've seen it, bad church leadership in a given church, what tends to happen? We maybe try to find other ways to deal with it. Maybe we say, well, let's go do this. Let's go do that. Let's try to move away from it. The... Let's not do church anymore. I don't go to church. I know people that no longer go to church after attending church for 50 years because they just don't need it anymore. They don't need it. A lot of people since COVID said, I don't need church. Just be at home. Me and God, my family, we're good. Because we don't like what goes on in the church. We're a bunch of hypocrites, sinners, maybe they've been abused. Yeah, maybe. Um, but what the problem? What is the problem with that? New Testament example is we gather in churches. So we, like the Israelites of the day, might say, you know what, that system doesn't work. I'm done with it. That's not good enough, though, because God desires His people to be gathered together in churches. So let's not fall for that one, Okay. Let's gather together, muscle through it, work it out. doesn't work out, go somewhere else. But stay gathered together at his people. So now we're going to look at the rights of the king. And it's kind of a, we don't have to look at all of the areas. We'll, we'll kind of go down through it. Because what it does is gives you a sense of the overwhelming nature of the change that's about to come. And I've listed several things here from verses 10 to 18. The first of which, he will take your sons for his personal use and for his war use, right? It seems like they wanted a king for the purposes of protection. He's going to take your daughters as perfumers, which actually means concubines. Cooks and bakers. He's going to take their property Their crops, their animals, their servants. And in fact, he says, You might become the king's servant, overwhelming in every aspect of their life, feeding off of it like a leech. Another little tangent here we can think about both in the world at large and even in the church is what does he say the king is going to do? with the things he takes. Of course, he's going to use it for himself, but he's going to give it to who? His servants. And why would he have to give it to his servants to make them loyal? Of course, he needs his servants to do the things, the military, go out and get the money, bank his money, process the grain, however it is they took all this stuff. But ultimately, it builds in this massive bureaucratic structure that then is hard to work against. And this kind of dominance over other people is something I've spoken of before. I think within the lost heart of man is the desire to dominate other people, even in little ways. All of us have experienced it, even from the little person in your workplace that gets a thrill out of getting up on you one. Because they like to feel dominant. Maybe we do this to other people and we don't realize it. But in bigger structures, in nations, history clearly shows us that our experience in the West with our relative freedom is unique in world history. The largest bulk of human history shows that it's a matter of one person dominating another person. One king overcoming another king. And that's what's going to happen to them. And in these systems of dominance are structures that are hard to beat. Because everyone is feeding off the king's largesse. Maybe a good example, which I'm not that greatly informed on, now would be uh, the country of Argentina. You know, the country of Argentina was really amazing. They had a lot of oil. They had a lot of prosperity in the 70s and even the 80s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And they were taken over. They voted in a dictator. They voted in the king that they wanted. And now what do they have? A horrendous... Dictator who has sucked the life out of the nation, and you think, well, why don't they just rise up and beat this back? It's because I, I believe because it's so difficult to do because he's built in a structure, a bureaucratical structure that keeps people suppressed. So once you're at that point, it's it's hard to turn the ship around. And I dare say that can happen in the church. That's why some churches you, you look at, and I don't like to criticize the church, but I think the lessons you can take um, are valuable from what goes on in some places. Like, nah, we're not doing that. Is that if we allow leaders, a leader maybe in particular, to have autonomy, he will build a structure of bureaucracy that's hard to deal with. And you look at major failings maybe moral failings or some kind of thing with a church leader and you look at how long it's gone on you say how could that go on so long before something happened it's because there's always almost always a structure there to support it even if it's kind of an unwilling structure even if it's just raw power people are cowed into submission and nothing happens and so when we ask for a king and we can ask for a king in our personal life That thing may rule us. We can ask for an autocratic spiritual leader in our life. That thing will rule us eventually. We can ask for an autocrat in a nation. That thing will rule us eventually. Because that's the nature of this kind of power. And we're asking for it. My tangent. Godless rulers will almost always take what they can from people. And so when people say, well, we never saw it coming... You could see it coming if you just opened your eyes to see what's coming. So this is a pretty dire situation, right? I mean, this is pretty ugly. Can you imagine someone saying, if you you have this king, this is what he's going to do? And what do they do? They reject the warning. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, verse 19. And they said, no. No. There will be a king over us. Wow. And so, in a sense, what does God do? Kind of shrugs his shoulders and says, okay. Now, obviously, God isn't glib like that. And we'll make a point about that in a little bit. They did not believe this would happen. I'm sure as they looked around and saw the other nations, they saw varying degrees of it. But they thought, nah, it's not going to happen to us. You know, we're we're smarter than everybody else. We'll get it right. Notice the irony here. Here they complained about the injustice of Samuel's sons, rightfully so, to do what? Ask for a king who would turn around and be even more unjust. Is that not like us sometimes? That's the whole it can't happen here thing. True in life in the church. With bad leadership, oh, that can't happen here. It's not gonna happen here. We'll be fine. We'll be okay. We don't we don't have to really kind of hang to these principles that we understand today God is using in us. The church, give us a charismatic pastor who's youthful, smooth with words, good looking, and wears skinny jeans or whatever. Pick out skinny <laughs> jeans. You know what I mean give us that because that's what other churches have we want to be like the other churches we want to be like the other people maybe we're not called to that give us give us someone someone got to be careful about that another commentator said any attempt to have an earthly king to take the lord's rightful place will end catastrophically and i like that word catastrophically because that's the picture God says it's going to happen. It's a catastrophe. Not a mistake. It's a catastrophe. And I think in our world today, in matters of sin and the intensity of the kinds of sins that are going on around us, and if we get drawn into these sins, they're ultimately sins of idolatry, right? I want more money. I want more sex. I want more stuff. I want more friends. I'm going to go pursue that. Instead of God, and we know better, will end catastrophically. That's why people seem to blow up all of a sudden out of nowhere. You're like, whatever happened to them? They were quietly in their heart seeking for another king. They were entertaining other idols. And now it's on their throne and it ends catastrophically. And that's not just to scare us into submission to God. Not at all. It's to highlight the choice that we have before us serve God in His ways, the best that we understand Him will be imperfectly, we'll still stumble and fall. We get up, we repent, we move on. Or we can serve the idols of the world. Whatever that, especially one or two things is, it will end catastrophically. So what are the lessons about all of this? One question prompts a thought about what we can learn is, how many times have you gotten the thing you obsessed over only to find it empty? Yes? Even as a kid, right? You got this stupid plastic submarine in your, you know, your Cheerios, and you had it for three minutes and it broke, and now the end is here. It's catastrophic as a kid. That's just the beginning of learning that lesson, right? we want something so much we might obsess about it and that's that's a good warning um and i've tried to heed that warning in my own life when i'm doing something even even in ministry or traveling or whatever like if it becomes like obsessive like tell yourself wait, wait let's back up and take a look at this because it's 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 stealing my heart stealing part of my heart i'm trusting in this thing to fulfill me right it could be catastrophic if we're not careful, so be careful what you wish for. We like that phrase. I like it. Be careful what you wish for. Careful what we obsess over. Do we obsess over church growth? Oh, we got to have a church plant, which we did. We got to do this. We got to have that ministry. We got to have this. And obsessing as if that's our answer. Those things are not our answer. We're going to do them here and there, but be careful. Because sometimes those things don't end well if God is not leading in that direction. That's the thing. There's so many applications to these truths. Our personal lives, our church life, our community life. The principle is the same. It's consistent. And we need to learn to recognize it and see it. I will say one thing, though, that's important to make sense of a passage like this. And even as I was reading a few different commentaries, um, usually when I, I study, I do my whole own setup. I do my study until I'm like out of things to study directly, and then I read commentators. I don't read them first because I often don't agree with their, their interpretation of a particular passage. But one thing I think is even missed by commentators is that all of this is set in the historical flow of God's redemptive history, Right? So even though we say, well, why Samuel? How did he miss it? Or the people, what, what were they thinking? And all of these questions, and God, why did he just give in and give him a king and say, great? Because in whatever mysterious and wonderful way that God works is, this was all a part of his plan to expose what the human heart is and set up history for the coming of Christ, right? And so... Even as we draw out all these lessons and we apply them to ourselves, we set it in the context of knowing this is what God was doing to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus Christ. Because what happens in the coming years of the kings? Do you know how many times the people failed, repented, failed, repented, failed, repented? If you read through the Old Testament in a fairly short period of time you're like, wow, I can't, it's like hundreds of times. Dozens of kings came, good king, bad king, bad king, good king, good king, bad king. And the whole point of it is, that is because we do not have it within us to merit salvation before God. We can't sacrifice enough. We can't live right enough because we are on the throne of our hearts, and the old flow of the Old Testament shows us this and teaches us that we will fall, repent, fall, repent, fall, repent, if less to our own devices. So that's what it's about, is God's sovereignty and God's sovereignty in our lives. What's ironic is, this was predicted. In Deuteronomy 17, which we had just read out of Deuteronomy previously. So way back then, before all this time of Samuel, God already said it's going to happen. So let's, let's put that together. Deuteronomy 17, 14. When you enter the land the Lord God is giving you, and you have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations... Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. And it goes on to talk about who he must be. And so, going forward, we're going to begin to answer the question, Well, who is that king? Who's the first king? And how was he picked? Way back before in Deuteronomy, when they're still wandering in the desert, God already sees it coming and already tells them how to do it. That wasn't giving them permission, but he already predicted it because he knew that this is what was going to happen And it was part of his plan. So, when Samuel said, Lord, what do I do? He said, Do what they ask you. So when God tells us to do what he wants us to do, let's follow him. And let's keep him on the king of our hearts. King of our lives. Every day. So, ultimately, we can ask ourselves, where do we stand today? If you're a believer... Are you in good stead with God, your king? Are there areas that you need to address and say, Lord, you need to take this thing over. I've taken it back. I constantly take it back. I give it to you. Even the idea of raising your children to maybe be missionaries. i release those children to you, God, whatever you want. I will not stand in the way of that. I'll not stand in the way of what you do in my life in any way. If you don't know Christ today, maybe today is the day to put Him on the throne of your life and commit yourself to Him and His ways. Because we can keep going around this little Ferris wheel of our own idolatry, round and round and round and round, up and down, up and down, until it ends catastrophically. And even if we think we're in charge, when we face Judgment Day, that'll be a catastrophe of the worst kind we can imagine. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you indeed are the King we need. You are the one for us to stand before and honor, and give you our lives in complete submission. And say, "Come, fill me, fill me afresh, Lord, today. Give me your mind. Help your Spirit to open my heart up to things I haven't seen yet. Help me to see your Word better and understand the principles." that I need to walk in so I don't run after other gods and other idols. Father, I commit my way to you today. Lord, we commit our church to you. We say we will not follow man. We will not follow other churches. We will not follow trends. We will not follow culture. But, Lord, we will follow you with all of our hearts. Amen.